automobile slowdown. Why isn't anybody buying cars? Kushal Pratap Singh asks his team to double-check the numbers. He can't believe what he is seeing. It's the seventh straight month that the dealers have sent in a tepid forecast. Although he wasn't expecting the numbers to suddenly turn positive, he never thought for once the slowdown could last so long. FCK it, he says and walks out to the lobby. As soon as he makes his way out of his cabin he sees a crumbled newspaper lying on the sofa right next to him. The front page has a large graphic at the bottom showing the terrible state of big auto companies. The headline reads, NBFC crisis hits auto sales. Slowdown imminent. You see, when people talk about a slowdown, they are not necessarily saying that auto sales have stopped growing. What they are instead alluding to is the fact that the rate of growth might be slowing down. This is important for several reasons. For one, the automobile sector contributes about 7% to the country's GDP and about 49% to the country's manufacturing GDP. Think about it this way. If there was a slowdown in the auto sector, the effects wouldn't be isolated and the contagion would spread quickly. Tires, steel, headlights, insurance, leather components industries that are closely associated with the auto industry would all suffer in tandem. In fact, the moment the slowdown in the auto sector became apparent, journalists started scouring the web seeking reasons for the abrupt slowdown. First, they said it was a weak festive season. The only problem with this explanation was that there was no convincing argument why the festive season was weak in the first place. Then people started blaming the NBFC crisis. Since most automobile purchases are financed by the good folks at non-banking financial corporations, it is natural for one to presume that the NBFC crunch would inevitably affect automobile sales. Until in April 2019 RBI crushed that narrative, stating that the automobile slowdown could probably be explained by fuel prices and policy decisions. The memo took a mathematical approach to show that the NBFC crisis had no role to play whatsoever and a change in insurance policy could perhaps explain more of the slowdown than a crunch in auto loans. But the common underlying theme in all these explanations is that this is only a temporary blip and the downturn is unlikely to persist. But what if we are wrong? What if the slowdown could be symptomatic of a more general slowdown in the whole economy? Could it be possible that the growth engine of this country is losing steam? Well, to figure out if that is a possibility, we must peer into the insides of one of the prime drivers of the consumption engine, the FMCG sector. FMCG times slowdown. Have people stopped buying biscuits too? Lokesh Darwala is the head, sales and marketing of an FMCG giant that's a leader in selling biscuits. Selling biscuits might not sound attractive, but like most consumer goods, it's an extremely lucrative business, especially if you are the industry leader. However, the mood today is somber. Lokesh has to front the media and explain why their sales haven't been up to par this quarter. He takes one final look at his scribble pad and shakes his head. His anxiety arises from that fact that he is in a unique position. The expectation was that this quarter would most definitely see a rise in sales of packaged goods considering it was an election season. With a lot of manpower patrolling the streets of India, one would expect biscuits and soda to sell well. However, that hasn't happened. Instead, the entire sector seems to be reeling over a bizarre slowdown episode. To understand the source of this anomaly you have to go back in time. Over the past few years, growth in the FMCG sector has primarily been attributed to the rural sector. This interesting paradigm forms the basis of what most people call the great Indian consumption story. The story is always told the same way. India is after all one of the fastest growing economies in the world and as we move closer to the future, more people will lift themselves out of poverty and assimilate with the burgeoning middle class. With improved well-being, the story posits that they will likely spend more on food, 
hygiene and other consumables. So ideally you should see growth coming in from places where historically income levels have been poor i.e. rural areas. Unfortunately, a precondition for this story is that people with depressed income ought to find enough abs to improve their livelihood. In the event that they don't, expectations of stratospheric sales can come crashing down. Last year, the country experienced a bad monsoon and food prices stayed low. So low that most farmers have had to cut down on essential purchases particularly consumer staples. This brings us to another crucial matter. What if there is a bad monsoon and food prices stay low this year once more? What if farmers don't find enough abs to boost their income? Will the FMCG slowdown continue? This is perhaps the reason why Lokesh Dalwala was tentative in the first place. Because he has no clue where we are headed. All he knows is that the heady growth days of yesteryears might finally be coming to a close. Meanwhile, there is another strange phenomenon on the rise. In the midst of the rural economic slowdown, this year also saw the migration of over 50 lakh people away from urban centers back to agriculture. This is deeply counterintuitive. If the farm economy is, in fact, such deep distress, why is that we see this absurd labor migration? To answer this question, we must move elsewhere far away from the farmlands. We need to venture deep into real estate and housing. Real estate slowdown. Is there going to be a comeback? Back in Mumbai, a young journalist is trying his best to put together a story on the real estate slowdown for the weekend edition of his newspaper. He's been told his piece is going to appear on the cover page. Obviously, that means some needless extra pressure, but also an opportunity to prove himself to the almighty boss lady, the editor-in-chief. While there is a lot of material online explaining the rise and fall of real estate, there's very little stuff connecting all the dots. And so, he begins constructing the narratives. After the great boom in the early millennium, many large real estate developers carved out grand plans for expansion that never really materialized. When their expectations soured, they were left with unsold properties that had no real takers in the first place. Instead of throwing in the towel, most developers decided to fight it out. Meanwhile, the interest cost on all that borrowed money that had fueled the real estate binge started spiraling out of control. When they couldn't deal with the higher interest cost, they started negating it by selling houses at even higher prices. So we had prices of certain properties being driven, not by demand, but by desperate real estate developers trying to protect their margins. Secondly, as housing prices increase, rental yields on properties tumble and in 2015, yields hit a staggeringly low 2%, meaning you could expect to earn about 2% every year from the investment you make outside of property price appreciation. This isn't a worthwhile money-making opportunity when you are expected to pay close to 10% in home loan interest. Even if one were to assume that home ownership is a cultural phenomenon, and only a symbolic investment endeavor, property prices can't keep appreciating forever. And as property prices started plateauing, cracks began to appear. Meanwhile, banks that had loaned out to distressed developers kept throwing good money in the hope that real estate will finally see a comeback, in that there will be a revival in housing demand. While there was some hope initially, all that came crumbling down when the government introduced a host of regulations that broke the backs of many real estate developers. The general prognosis it seems is that housing prices appreciated much faster than the rise in income levels of most people. Although it's not quite clear how this anomaly came about in the first place, it was evident that real estate as a sector began to lose sheen. And that brings us to the final point. How is all of this connected to people moving back to agriculture? Well, with the downturn in construction and real estate, an industry that was primarily responsible for absorbing unskilled labor suddenly had no need for them. And in turn, this had to turn back to agriculture a profession that had historically fed them, most likely out of desperation.
But even with all the signs pointing towards a material slowdown in the economy, there was one data point that stood in stark contrast to the popular narrative. The real GDP despite most economic indicators suggesting a slowdown in growth, the GDP number remained quite steady until the elections concluded. After that, things took a pretty drastic turn. The final admission. It's confirmed. We are in a slowdown. It all began with the government first confirming the data from the ENSO job survey, a report stating that India's unemployment level stood at a four-decade high. In fact, some time earlier a prominent minister had stated that unemployment levels could not have been so high considering India was still growing at about 7%, a rather spectacular number considering the circumstances. This brought the famous term jobless growth to the forefront, a strange phenomenon where the country continues to grow despite there being no growth in the job market. But with the government confirming the unemployment number, that narrative fell apart quickly. Then the second figure came in. The bombshell number finally confirmed the country's worst fears. India's growth rate was, in fact, slowing down. The latest growth rate stood at about 5.8%, a rather remarkable decline from the heady number of 7%. This was the first official confirmation from the government that the spectre of jobless growth was in fact just that and India's situation was more symptomatic of what one would call a jobless economic slowdown. With the government trying to assuage any fear, the RBI stepped in and cut interest rates, another indication that all hands were on deck now to stimulate growth. However, all this pales in comparison to what would come next. On the 11th of June in a series of tweets, the former chief economic advisor, Arvind Subramanian began elaborating in great detail how India might have been overestimating growth all these years. The technical paper that formed the basis of his tweets provided a rather elaborate account of what most people were fearing already i.e. India's GDP number could not have been accurate by any stretch of the imagination. Immediately there was a barrage of counter-attacks from all corners attacking the former CEA for what one commentator called intellectual treason against the country. Although, most people directly attacked the methodology deployed by Arvind Subramanian, very few people could explain how India could keep growing despite the fact that most economic indicators associated with prosperity were hardly trudging along. However, even the most hardened critics had to concede that despite Arvind Subramanian's apparent dodgy analysis, it was time to acknowledge the evidence India's growth is slowing down. So that leaves us here, in what is perhaps one of the most important moments in India's history. We have gone from denying the obvious to now acknowledging that urgent economic reforms are the need of the hour. But what is still not clear is how we got here in the first place. Why is the rural economy struggling? Why didn't the real estate developers' plans never materialize as they imagined? Why isn't the average person's income rising in tandem? What has household savings and corporate investments got to do with the whole mess? We will explore this and much more in the second part of this story. So until then, stay tuned.